If you know even a little bit about me, you know I love some good fight songs. And I'm telling you, man, that song is like a fight song. It makes you want to do a backflip off the baptistry, go clothesline the devil. Whenever you take all of the contents into your heart and think about what's happening there. Title of the song, by the way, is King of Kings. What a fitting title for a song that we sing today that glorifies Jesus as a resurrected king of all eternity. And it says that he is now present in empowering his church in the world. Uh, this is why we gather each and every week, this is why we gather each and every Sunday to praise God for who he is in our lives. We believe this because the Bible's overarching narrative events declare this in many ways. Jesus declared it in his own resurrection. So today's important, and it's an important day to celebrate, but I ask the question, why? Why do you celebrate Easter? Is it a tradition? Is it just something we do as a family? Is it something that you were drugged to because somebody said you will go, just like I'm wearing this shirt because my wife bought it and said, I would very much like you to wear this shirt, which doesn't mean I have a choice, by the way, right? Why? Kenny read the Easter narrative, the resurrection narrative of the resurrection of Jesus and then the immediate following reaction to that is, hey, now the church, go into the world. You're empowered by me to bring my presence everywhere you go because I'm with you. Um, but why are you here? It's a great question. I'd, I'd much rather explore the reason for the resurrection, the details of the resurrection itself. I mean, we can talk every which way around what happened on that morning, which is profound and amazing and powerful. But why does it have any meaning to celebrate? Why is it so essential? There are other people throughout the history of the world as we see in the events of the Bible as narrated for us where somebody who was dead came back to life. We don't get together on whatever day that was and celebrate like we do today. So I think going back to understanding who it is at the core of all things uh, Jesus is as to why we gather to celebrate. You know, the disciples were asked by Jesus himself, he said, who do the people say that I am? They gave some responses as what the people were saying. And then he point blank said, who do you say that I am? These are people who are following him closely who've committed their lives to following him. And Peter speaks up first, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. All the other disciples confirm, yep, we believe this same thing to be true. The question is, what does that mean? And, and of course, asking the question, what does it mean to you? Not so that you could define what it means, but because you actually have a biblical definition of who Jesus is and why you celebrate his resurrection at the heart and core of all things. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who existed before time was even in the midst of creating things, it should radically reorientate our lives and change how we live and what we do. Christianity is far more than behavioral modification. Does it change how we live? Yeah. But if we just come to Christ and say, I need to fix this little area and fix that little area and be a little bit better about this, anybody can just be a little bit better or more good 
But it's not just simply behavioral modification. It's not a way of accessing a genie in the bottle, right? Okay, things are bad. Let me show up. Let me ask God some things here. It's way more profound, and it goes back to the history of the world and before time even began. So what does this mean? Because essentially, Christianity... Uh, choosing to serve the Christ means laying down your life before him as though he is present with you every day. He is empowering you every day, and you serve his wishes and will every single day. And, and I think that we struggle with that, but there's a historical narrative. I can't give you all the pieces. I mean, the Bible's a pretty long thing, and I can't give you all of it in one Sunday, but going all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, when they recognized their sin and their failure, which, by the way, was just they hated God. I know you think, well, no, they didn't. Yeah, they rejected him. They rebelled against him. It was tantamount to hate, essentially, and that's going to make sense to you as we move along in this message. But they recognized and realized what they did and that it was wrong, and God gave them a promise that he would restore humanity back to what they had lost. And then you see Eve when she gives birth to Cain and she's excited and she says, with the help of the Lord, he has given me a son. I believe in her mind she thought this is the one God promised that's going to restore everything that I broke. Now, we know that that wasn't the case because nobody names their kid Cain these days because we know why, right? Uh, if you're named Cain, I love you. Sorry, okay? Uh, talk to your parents, not me. But this was the faithful view that she had. She thought, okay, this is what God had promised. And we see this from people who are faithful to the promise of God throughout time and throughout history. What follows, obviously, the creation and fall event is a tapestry of events through time that all point to one person and one moment in time. You see, what's interesting is the resurrection is not just another event in this tapestry. The entire tapestry paints the picture of the resurrection. From all the various and sorted events in the lives of God's people throughout history that we get the opportunity to peruse through and look at, they all have this resemblance and perfect painted picture of this is pointing to the Christ. This is pointing to the anointed one of God. This is pointing to a specific time of events in God's plan. It's not just another one of the events in the overall Fixture of it. And so we see God's people fall away from him, repent, return to him, fall away from him, repent, return to him. There's this like vicious cycle uh, that we can't do this on our own is what it's trying to teach us. And there's just so many great illustrations. Let me grab for you just one. Samuel, who's a prophet of God. He was told by God to go to the house of Jesse. By the way, that's King David's father, but this is before David was king. Because God had said, the people wanted a king. They rejected me as king. They want a man to rule over them. Great idea, by the way, right? You know? And, um, and then they had Saul, and God says, I've rejected him as king because he's not a godly king. And so Samuel is sent by God. He says, I want you to go to Jesse's house, and, and you're going to set apart one of his sons as my next king over my people. And listen to what Samuel says when he shows up, and he sees the firstborn, Eliab, which, by the way, was not the pick just in case you don't know the rest of the story. And this is what happens. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. This is an important statement. 
This is a statement that is applied to the Christ, the one chosen by God before the beginning of time. See, I think in many ways, Samuel's another one of those people of great faith, and he understands everything hinges on the Christ, and he thinks, this is the one who could fix everything in these thousands of years that have gone in a way that we don't like and we don't want because we have rejected God and hated God. But we know that that's not true because there's only one king of kings, but we see Samuel's hope for that king. And Jesus is the anointed one of God who was with God from the very beginning. Scriptures make this clear. One of the best places I can think of in the New Testament that makes this extremely clear is in Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. There's so many more verses in the New Testament that echo this exact same sentiment about who Jesus ultimately is. And Jesus never really himself outright says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the anointed one. Yes, I'm the one God has sent. He says it in so many different ways to really cause people to lean in and listen to what he had to say to allow their hearts to wrap itself around who he is. Now, I mean, obviously, when he asked Peter and the other disciples, he said, hey, guys, who do you say that I am? Peter says the Christ. Jesus said, good choice. That You're right. When he's on trial, he's asked, are you the Messiah? Do you claim to be the king of the Jews? It is as you say, he says. And besides, uh, the loudest dog, the dog with the biggest bark, typically is the one with the little bite, right? I mean, in other words, Jesus didn't need to say who he was. He resurrected from the grave. And it wasn't that he resurrected, he's now afforded the opportunity, he's now crowned as king, or he's crowned as the anointed one. Okay, you've earned this title. No, he had that title from the beginning of time. He had that power from the beginning of time. And it was in the resurrection that he determined and showed the world who he has always been and who he will always be, an eternal king uh, that ultimately leads and loves people in a powerful way. The reality of who Jesus is is clearly spelled out in the scriptures and even before he ever showed up on the scene. There's a powerful psalm, Psalm 2, that declares who Jesus is before Jesus was ever born. Why? Because he existed before the foundation of the world. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break the chains and throw off the shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said, to me, you are my son. 
Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son and, or he will be angry and your way will lead you to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is like a river. The river has its place, it has its purpose, but every once in a while what happens, rains come down, the rivers rise and they flood and they overtake their banks. They encompass the entire land. They touch everything around. Is it possible that this psalm could be speaking of various kings throughout the time of, of God's people before Jesus ever came? Absolutely, it's possible. But it is very clear that this is a psalm that overfloods its banks and takes over the land because it is pointing to the anointed one of God. It is pointing to Jesus, the son of God. It is pointing to the Christ and to say, there is a time in which I will do something to declare very clearly who Jesus is and why people should give their heart to him. Here's what Psalm 2 basically tells us. It tells us that we have an eternal king. This next one you're not going to like, but it's true. We hate the eternal king, and we need the eternal king. Here's the thing about Jesus, all right? We've reduced his name to something simple. Matter of fact, we've given him a first and last name, and that's how most people see it, Jesus Christ. We just use it as a vain term anymore. It's not like that's his first name and that's his last name. We've even dropped the article, the Christ. We've lost the real appointed title of him, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was established before time ever came. And he is the eternal king that Psalm 2 talks about. We have an eternal king. We hate the eternal king. And we need an eternal king. Now, the first one is a whole other sermon, but I got halfway there, right? 50% of that's done. The fact that we have a king, you're here. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some reason while you're here. You believe that the scriptures speak to that. It's that second one that I think we really struggle with. But verse one makes it clear. The nations conspire against, the people plot against. We try to break our shackles away from the Lord and his anointed. We're always trying to go our own way, trying to do whatever it is that we want to do. Most of us get this in theory and in, in simplicity, right? We all have animals or have had animals at some point. We've all been to the, the shows at KVLS and we've watched some kid not bringing their steer in, but being drugged in by their steer. You know what I'm talking about? Because that thing decided I don't want to wear this harness or be led today and I'm in charge. Some of you got a dog halfway through the walk. That dog looks up at you and lays down. It's like, I know this person who thinks that they own me, but I own them. We'll carry me the rest of the way home. Some of you got a cat still trying to convince you, you are the pet. They are the owner. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we get that. But we struggle to apply it to our own hearts. And a full concept and understanding of who Jesus really is. Who do I say he is? Do I define him how I want to define him? Mark Moore makes a great statement. I just kind of generalize here in his book, Core 52, Week 15. He says that the Jews were expecting a conquering king to take over Rome, 
give them their authority, so on and so forth. And they received a suffering servant, and for that they rejected him. He goes on to say, most American Christians are expecting a suffering servant to save us. And when we find out that we have a conquering king who rules over us, we reject him. And it's a struggle to surrender our lives and our heart. Uh, People hate the king because we want to go our own way. If you think about it, our country does not have a problem with God. Our world does not have a problem with God. Our country doesn't have a problem with religion. We embrace all kinds of stuff. You know, you won't get in trouble for believing something in general. It's when you start getting specific. So we say, well, I, I believe in the God of the Bible, the one whose son is Jesus the Christ, uh, the one who's uh, going to make every knee bow and every tongue confess. That's when you run into some problems. Outside of that, in many ways, in some ways, you know, religion as a whole, and even in Christian churches today, sadly to say, it doesn't look much different than anything else, Judaism or Muslim faith or Hinduism or any other ism, right? Because they all pray and they all believe in some things and so on and so forth. But it's what we believe that has the power to radically change who we are. And maybe the, the, the church isn't advancing within our community in such a powerful way because we don't really understand what we should believe about the one that we celebrate on Easter Sunday. But here's the crazy thing. The reality is every heart needs the eternal king. I'm going to say something you may not like. Say something that may be hard, but it's true. Your heart was created to be ruled. Every human heart was created to be ruled. Something will take its position and its place and authority over you. Some of you are thinking, absolutely not. Not me. I'm in charge. I do what I want, how I want, when I want. Awesome. So your king is pride. Your king is arrogance. Everybody has a king. The only thing we get to choose is whether or not the king who has authority over our heart and whom we serve is worthy of that position. And by the way, how's that going for you? How are your relationships? Oh, your kids don't actually like to spend time with you. Why is that? I'm not talking about the teenagers. That's a whole other story. I'm telling you something rules your hearts whether it's personal pride, whether it is arrogance, whether it's foolishness, whether it's lust, whether it's someone or something, every heart was made to be ruled. And the word of God is telling us, the resurrection tells us there's only one person who is worthy of that position. And when we know that, when we understand that, the peace fits. We realize how we've been giving ourselves over to this or giving ourselves over to that and and everything's kind of upside down and inside out. But I realize how easy the yoke of the Lord is, how good it is to unite my life with him, how great it is to serve his will and give up my own because he always leads me in green pastures and brings me to a place where I can lie down and find rest and find his good and pleasing love. Uh, George MacDonald was a writer who inspired C.S. Lewis to even write, and he made a statement. The principle of hell is I am my own. 
This is the conviction everyone in hell shares. Quite frankly, it might be the conviction that creates the culture of hell. I am my own. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul, so to speak. And in doing so and thinking so, this conviction uh, is the reason we end up having a marriage that is like hell. It's the reason our relationships are like hell. It's the reason our work sometimes is like hell. And go on down the list. And what Psalm 2 is declaring, what the resurrection is declaring, what God's word from Genesis to Revelation declares is there's only one king who has the power and loves you enough to free you from the hell of your own choosing. So where do we go from here? I think a lot of us, maybe some of us, believe in Jesus in a general way. I think there's some of us who just think he's important, which is awesome, but we also think that other things are equally as important in our lives as he is. Um, How do you know if you're treating Jesus as the king who is the anointed one of God from before the time of all things or something else? Well, let me just give you some simple application here. Do you obey? Is Jesus your king or is he your consultant? You know, like, I'll do that if it's good for me, if it makes me feel good, if it is popular to do. I mean, if, if you look at various things in your life where you know you're going against the will of God, which the Bible makes that clear, that's sin, and you just simply say, okay, well, I can do that and just, basically, you know, repent later, then I would venture to say that Jesus is your consultant, which is radically different than making Jesus your king. Do you accept? Do you see a great God in your life every day and see the many reasons you have to be grateful? Or are you too busy saying, well, this didn't go right and this isn't good and I don't like the way that this works out and this isn't fair and so on and so forth. You know, Eeyore kind of stuff, right? There's a place in Job 23 as he wrestles with God in his difficult circumstances of life. And he says, I don't sense God's presence. And the things God is allowing to happen fill me with terror. But he knows my way. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as pure as gold. Is Jesus somebody you go to just to simply fix something that you feel like needs fixing in the moment? Or is he your king that you have accepted as a ruler over your heart regardless of circumstances of the day? Do you rely? Rely on him. When you add anything to Jesus as a requirement for happiness in life, congratulations, you have now found your real king. Whatever add-on it is, I'll be happy with Jesus if this or if that. So many people, I believe, begin toying with a relationship with Jesus as their king. And as they wrestle through life's circumstances, they come to this point where like, okay, Lord, okay, I promise, I promise I'm going to do this. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. But I need you to do A, B, C. And I mean, the word of God is declaring, 
I've already given my son to you on a cross in a horrible death. What else do you need me to do to prove my love and my desire for you and my opportunity for you to be restored and freed from your hell of your choosing back to me? And the last one I love, do you expect? Psalm 2 says, rejoice with trembling. So often I think we come to God with a thimble. You know, envision a little thimble, right? Expecting some sort of blessing, and yet he's the God who fills the oceans. And it might be that we've just conditioned our hearts to believe that he's not a good God or he doesn't want to do great things for us. Or it could be that we've just become so accustomed to our lifestyle and the sin that's involved with it that we believe that's the greatest blessing we can get while God has infinite resources available to us just waiting on us to hit rock bottom to see just how good and how great he is because he's gracious to stay there and be available to us always at all times. Do you think of him and treat him as though he's cheap? Like some sort of president that comes and goes, like all the rest, just clamoring for your certain tax rate or this or that that you want, or treat him as someone who existed before time with infinite resources to empower you to live the life that he designed for you to live. John Newton says it well. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Your heart was created to be ruled, and there is only one when you understand who he is that is worthy of that position and title in your life. As the word of God says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 2. Thank you for the powerful demonstration that you've given us from beginning to end of Genesis to Revelation. Event after event, all pointing us to the most essential event we could ever imagine. You yourself in the flesh here with us. You're anointed. Father, help us to begin to let go of our idols, begin to let go of subservient masters that we've given the the throne of our heart to in various ways, regardless of what it may be, whether it be addictions, whether it be lust, whether it be arrogance, whether it be pride. And the list is long, Lord. Help us to release our hearts to be ruled by you knowing that your anointed one, Jesus, is the only one worthy of that position and you will bring blessings that can fill the oceans into our lives and help us to begin to live as we should, as though eternity is right now, today, and that death is just a mere blip on the map because of what you've done so that as we celebrate your presence today, We look forward to, in the future, celebrating your presence unhindered by the flesh and the brokenness of this world because of what your anointed has done. And Father, we ask that you'd help our hearts to to understand this better every day, that you'd give us persistence, 
that you would help us to move forward in wisdom with the vision that you give. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.